<coughs> excuse me, we've been studying a issue of transgression and teshuvah from the book of Shemuel, Shemuel Bet, and then we had already recount, recounted two distinct narratives revolving around Shaul. In the first narrative, Shaul did not wait for Shemuel to come. Rather, in the last minute of the last hour, of the seventh hour, Shaul offers the korban. Did Shaul have a good rationalization for this? Absolutely, yes. What does Shaul say? He says to Shemuel when he's challenged on this issue, he says, what do you want me to do? I have 3,000 soldiers. They have 30,000 soldiers. They have 100,000 chariots and everything else they have. It's a massive army. They're going to destroy me. And people are so afraid, they're running away. I had to start the battle. I had to do something. I had to pray to God. So, you didn't come on time. But really, he came the last minute, it seems. Shaul tries to preempt Shemuel. And Shemuel says, Niskalta me, or you're very foolish. You don't understand. When God says, as an absolute commandment, to wait the full entire period of time, you must wait the full entire period of time. And what cannot explain or rationalize or try to <coughs> interpret God's word any other way? You must do exactly what Hashem wants. When you're the king of Israel, you must follow every order to the exact specifications. And you can't say, well, the people are running this way and I need to do this. Everything's irrelevant when it comes to God's absolute commandment. Good. Then we saw another context with regard to Amalek. Now, that's interesting because, again, it almost seems as if Shaul's given a second chance. Shemuel tells him, you were enthroned by God. Now, this is God's commandment. Go and destroy all Amalek. They're evil. God presumably knows what he's doing. We may not know. He knows. Go and destroy absolutely, completely, totally. Shaul says, I understand, fine. He even tells the Kenny, who were not part and parcel of Amalek, you did a chesed, you did a kindness with the Jewish people when they left Egypt, 250 years ago. So therefore, pseudo, remove yourselves from the Amalekites. Don't be caught up in this, this uh, jihad, this holy war against them. <clears throat> Please leave. They leave, fine. He engages in battle, destroys Amalek, but he has compassion, in quotes, on Metav Hatson, on the sheep, and on the king. We understand the sheep, it's a, he says, well, I want to bring it back to offer as a korban. <clears throat> he says. And on the king, well, nobody gives a rationale for that, but perhaps you could say, he's the king, it's almost, you said, a professional courtesy. I'm not going to destroy you, Agag. Even though Agag himself is a cruel, vicious, evil person, ironically, Shaul has compassion on the cruel, vicious, evil person, Agag, not on the children, not on the infants, whoever else was in that group. There are many different discussions that one can have regarding this issue of destroying Amalek. None of us feel comfortable with the notion of destroying an infant, a baby, a toddler. Were they part of this Amalekite people? Was the commandment really to destroy all of Amalek, which it seems to be from the shot of the text, was it only those who engaged in battle? Maybe therefore it's only the men and the women? Who knows? We don't really know. Maybe there's some missing issues of it. Or maybe it is as it is. Is that as it means? God says destroy all Amalek. They're just evil people. You cannot take the evil out of Amalek. Destroy it all. Finish. Yeah. So, or it is what it is, meaning that the Torah, Hashem, says there's an evil people through and through, you must destroy it completely. But what, what about the infants? That's so. Infants cannot be trained. They're Amalekite infants. Almost as a saying, there's a genetic basis to this evil. Do we, we don't really feel comfortable with that evil either, although there is, just recently we should mention it, further research that was done, which seems to want to genetically base something as compassion, which is a quality one may have, in a gen genetic code. Meaning the people that have, there's a gene for compassion. Emotions are genetically based. Can one say that? There's a lot of researchers now saying things like that. The basis of emotions is the genetic makeup of the person. And therefore, some people are more compassionate or less compassionate. And perhaps a person may even lack that gene for compassion. This is all kinds of implications. I mean, the person's not, not really responsible for his <coughs> evil deeds if he doesn't have the gift of compassion. Compassion? And he may not be able to learn compassion. He's missing it. As, for example, colorblindness. 
You're missing that gene which tells you the differences in colors. Something that you can learn. You're missing the gene. You still see it. However it is, you see, you read, you read your greens are just not straight in color blindness. So there are, there are researches, searches that have been done regarding that issue. I'm not going to go so far. I'm just throwing this out on the table. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true. There's a PhD person, um, Dr. Candace Pert. We used to a book about 10 years ago, actually. Superstar researcher, worked at NIH in cancer research, has a very prestigious PhD from a Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Sal Schneider. And she has a new work out which is called The Molecules of Emotion. We often think that emotions are something that just exist. They're there. She says, no, they're genetically based. She has shown, she has done research to show the genetic basis of emotions. As well as 10 years ago, there was an article in the Times, cut out, thought about, that one of the um, criminologists from Harvard, I believe it was James Q. Wilson, but I'm not sure, who said that there is research going along those lines that the compassion might be genetically based. Okay? Now, if that's the case, it gives all kinds of insight into Amalek. If it's not the case, we have this moral problem about killing Amalek. And yet, of course, we have to say on the other side of the ledger, we have to say that, of course, Torah is all about compassion, it's all about chesed, it's telling the kinney, don't you be part and parcel of this Amalekite people because you are innocent of all wrongdoing, and we tell them to be kind to the, to the ger, love the stranger. Ten times, love the stranger, again, you are strangers, love ger, give your food freely. All that we have today, welfare, state, it's all Torah-based. Shemitah, Yovel, uh, 10%, the tithe, all that. Uh, somebody comes to you and needs a loan. You must loan them money. Somebody comes down and, you give, and you, they give you a collateral. At night time, they need the collateral. Give it back to them. You have to give the collateral back to them at night because they need their night clothes. So that's, they're going to take the day clothes. Now you need to give them back their night clothes. And even more so, the host time Lord, stand outside. Don't dare enter into that person's realm. He's poverty stricken. The last thing he has is a little hovel of a house. You can't cross that threshold. And the man that you are asking for a collateral, okay, any collateral? I understand. Just take collateral. But he'll bring it out to you. Don't grab him. Don't go into his own home. So that has a tremendous amount of sensitivity for those underprivileged. The the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the unprotected members of society, Torah is greatly concerned about, repeatedly. So how do we find that consistent with destroying all of Amalek? So if you want to say that it meant destroying the soldiers, it's not according to the Peshat, maybe yes. If you want to say that they were given an alternative, if you become civilized human beings, we know that. Don't become Jewish. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't be cruel to animals. Don't curse God. Don't bow down to idols. And be kind to animals. And I say to And establish course of justice is the seventh. Be a decent human being. And we'll leave you alone. Commit yourself to these principles, we leave you alone. No, we're not. We, we, we insist upon being barbaric, which means no respect for human life. We do anything we want. We will rape, we will sodomize, we will do, commit bestiality. We don't want to be civilized human beings. So, then you may have said, okay, then you have a choice. Either you leave, or you have, according to Midrash, you are sure sent these three letters out. Either you could leave, become civilized human beings, or I will destroy. And when I say destroy, I mean absolutely. In the attempt to convince them to become civilized beings, we're a very powerful army. Yeshua might have told them, or Shaul might have told them. We don't know. And if you choose to engage in battle, we will destroy you. Absolutely, your men, your women, your children, everything. So do what's right. If I have the atom bomb, I tell Germany change your ways and become civilized human beings, or I'll wipe you out completely. You have to be so committed to the other way to the pagan way that you decide no I don't care I'm going to risk death I will die I'm going to stand for my uncivilized inhuman bestial behavior that's me that's what I want to do so if that were the case then we feel less compassion you were given the choice and we used your children as collateral you were saying we want you to save your children so become civilized no we want to be animalistic and we don't want to become civilized now imagine if in retrospect we knew Nazism prior to Nazism's Wise the power, and we had the power to do so, and the will, and we went to Hitler and said, look, either become civilized, or we will destroy you. Period. 
He says, and he says, no, I'm going to engage and I don't care. He says, I don't care. And he engages in that aggressive behavior because he's evil. And then you have to do what you said you're going to do. You're going to destroy. So you drop a bomb on, on Dresden in Germany. We did it. We killed children. Children die in war because you have to win the war. And the alternative is what? Hitler wins the war, in which case, yeah, you'll be destroyed. You do with Saddam Hussein. We do the same thing. We put, we, we stopped him over there. We will destroy you unless you agree to our terms. No problem. He agrees to the terms. And we want to check their nuclear weapons. Okay, no problem. So we, we do it for two, three, four, five years. The end, we lose the will, the resolve. He says, too bad, tough. Gets thrown out. He gets thrown out. He wins. So now he's continuously developing his weaponry. And we're going to pay a price for that. God forbid, but that's evil. That's awesome. But he didn't let us in the country to check him. Who, why, why are we asking him? We won the war, remember. We destroyed his army. Ten years later, his army's back in vogue, built up with a new energy and a new anger against those who destroyed us. But you committed that aggression. That they don't realize. They can't compute that. They committed that aggression against Kuwait. We came in. We destroyed them. What do they remember, selectively, that we destroyed them and we need revenge against you? So Saddam Hussein will keep on saying, we want revenge. We need revenge. We're going to take revenge against the great Satan in America. I mean, I hate to say it, but it's so analogous to the Palestinians. They declare war on us. They, you want to do this to land. No, we're not. We're declaring war. We're going to kill you. We're going to wipe you out. So we engage in battle and we win territory. And again they attack. And again they attack. And again they attack. And each time we, we want peace. We want peace. So now we stole their land. No, the UN gave us this land. Whatever the reasons is. The UN had sovereignty. They had to give us this new land. Okay, you declare war against me. So I want like every other nation civilized and otherwise, won territory in battle. That's what happens. America took half of Mexico in battle. Instead of Texas and Southern California, everything else like that. That's what happens in war. It's the way of the world. That's the way it works. So now, we took your land and you want it back. And you're going to kill us if I give it to you back. I don't give it to you back. It's perverse. I mean, how foolish can you be? I'm not happy that Sharon went on Temple Mount to make this political comment for a second. Not happy about it. Wasn't appropriate. Although he is right saying, and Apple comes to the court here, why can I go to Temple Mount? Why did they get preferential treatment? That it began before. What? It began before. It what? wasn't when Sharon went. Yes, yeah, before, of course. So they were just looking for excuses. Yeah, it was expl he, but he threw the match into the, yeah, to make it explode. So you will see their face. Okay, that's true. I mean, you want to give them back the Temple Mountain? If today you cannot walk in when it's under your control, what will happen? <laughs> exactly. Will be under their control? You can't walk in. And that's the tragedy of what's going on right now. What do you do? How do you solve this problem? And if I refuses UN sovereignty, divine sovereignty, he refuses everything. We have to have it. And East Jerusalem, and the capital, because we deserve a state. Who's that? What if the Indians say they want a state? Right. They want a state. So, what if the Mexicans want Texas back? Or a portion of it? What if Alaska... We really want to buy back Alaska because we didn't know exactly what it was worth. Like the Russians. See, it's folly. They bought Alaska in the middle of the 19th century. That's not the way the world works. But in, in the Middle East, that's the way it's working. So, I, know, I respect Barack for trying to do something. Because you have to do something. But what he's doing is not working. It's not nothing. They want nothing. And they have... Right now, they have the upper hand, ironically. <laughs> they're the aggressors, they're put down repeatedly, and they have the upper hand. Because they're saying, we want more, and otherwise we're not going to be happy. And if we're not happy, you're not going to be happy. We'll blow up your buses, we'll blow up your children, we'll declare war, we'll do interfile that, we'll, we'll sustain 100 people dying, but we'll make your lives miserable. So what do you do? It's, it's a terrible situation. You can't work this way. Could you deport all of one million Arabs? It's the, yeah, there sure would be. I say give them, give them a state on, on, in the West Bank someplace. Give them 10 states in the West Bank. What else are you going to do? More than that, if you have not been with Yasuo in Sfat... No, that you cannot do. You can't do that. You can't do that. The problem with them is you keep them an inch. Yes, exactly. That's what it's And, you know, we, none of us want to sound, sound this, you know, quote-unquote... As what? We sound gazanin, but that's... What's the word of the word? What's it not push? What's it mean, gazanin? What's it gazan? What? Biggins. Thieves. No. no, prejudice. Prejudice. Oh, prejudice. Gaza, I mean, Gaza is president. Oh, pre racist. Right, racist. President, right, Gaza from Gaza, right. You know, we want to sound that way, but this is, and I'm not that way. This seems to be a very straightforward, that's, they're, they're the ones who start a riot, they say, we're, we're shooting, we're killing them. But what do you want to do? You're killing us. You're shooting at us. You're throwing stones at us. 
So what else do you do? Sit down and get shot at? No. Well, you should react, but not that strongly. So if we throw stones, we almost kill you, and we shoot at you, maybe if you just, you know, use the pea shooter, that would be fine. Today, an old man and his grandson were in the, in the car. Very sad. And the stone, you heard about the no. stone? They throw a stone, and the old man lost his ear. Of course. Yeah, of course it happens that way. Sure. So it's a terrible situation. No answers. Right now it's terrible. And so we come back to Amalek. Which answer is that? Well, we don't want the war. I mean, they may precipitate it. That's what seems to be happening now. It's a terrible story. But even the war, what happens? You don't win the war. Then this time, maybe, we will not take something in order to give back. Now they will learn from the mistake. I don't think they're going to learn. Because the world will not learn. The world won't learn and Israel won't learn. And we need the world... It's an inter- it's a small world, it's an interconnected you don't know world. To get back, so you will have again a war, and again. There's no choice. That's what happens over here. I don't know. Very difficult. In any case, so we come back to Amalek, and Amalek is, is either biologically evil or sociologically evil, or maybe just say that the Torahs are saying that you have to destroy them because, as, as a threat to them, the destruction, the command to destroy, is a threat to them to them to change. How do you say as the guys Hamishi that Yeshua left behind? Which? Uh, is Amalek as bad as? Um, I know that we said that you don't leave guys Hamishi behind. It's like when, it, okay. when he had to destroy, he had to destroy everything. When, once you leave something, later on... It was the same? Yeah, so we call it guys Hamishi. In Hebrew? Yeshua, yeah. Guys? Hamishi, like... The one the guys? in the back... Guys? Guys, guys Hamishi. Fifth column? Where's the guys? Okay, okay. Uh, a, a group. A very big group. Push about guys? Guys. Guys, Mamila, Gius, Mamila. Oh, Gius. Uh, yeah, like a fifth column. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I don't know if you call it fifth column. So I know that when Yosua conquered the country, he left, I don't remember whom. He left to give on him. They became the guys, Hamishi. They were those they that integrate behind. They give on him. Yeah. <coughs> so the Amalekin is considered as the guys, Hamishi, that... Shaul left in Israel. So later on, there will be those that will rise against Israel. Well, that's what happens. I mean, it's not only Amalek. It could be any one of the Amim. Yeshua is told to destroy Shavat Amim. But they could either convert to Judaism, they could either do Shavat Amim, or they could leave. No, he left. He left. So how many he left? Nobody knows. He left pockets of in all different places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they came... That's what I'm referring to. Yeah, they came back. part of it. No, the Mitzvah of Amalek was separate. So that on top of the same yes. there were yes. Amalek? Yes. So why God then didn't talk about Amalek? To Yeshua. To Yeshua. He, um, and he left them to Shaul. Maybe. Because I remember that it said when they went out of Egypt, that uh, yeah, yeah, Amalek. don't. Yes, Amalek, right. For four generations or something and then just kill them. Not exactly, no. That's not a passage in the Torah. No. Wait. <laughs> Don't no, no, there's no way. No, there's no way. No, no, no. There is a way. No. no. I was in class and let me just trying to remember exactly. No, but that's not... Which thing when, has they a came out, when they came out of Egypt, they came into Israel. So they told them to kill this and to account for this and this and this and this. And the Amalekim, or whatever their name was there, yes, don't touch them now because you, when you will be back and be in Israel, after so many generations, I don't remember how many generations, just then kill them. No, you have to find the exact person. Look at Yoshua. I don't know what you're referring to. So look at Yoshua okay. and you'll see. I'm not sure. Because when I was asking the, the, the rabbi, why doesn't, uh, why that pasuk, Akam Lorgecha, Shkem Lorgo, worked in this case? Why yeah, do you have to yeah. wait so many generations just then to kill them when you know they're going to be here? I hear you. I think it's because to find the pasuk exactly and then see what he's talking about. Because okay. I'm not sure what you're referring to now. I mean, in the Torah itself, the five books of Moses, America has to be destroyed. But your question is a good one. Why do we wait 200 years before... Shaul's commandment. Yes. The answer might be that the Jews, as they entered into Israel, Judea, at that point in time, Canaan, didn't have the strength to engage in all these battles. So the first, Yeshua didn't first take care of the seven army, which he did do. definitely said that you have to wait and kill them just then. It's like find like, it, find so it. Find it. Why he said to convert them. Like uh, d- different issue. That's, 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 that's the same thing. Why didn't they destroy them? I don't know if they could have, but that was a different lesson, different issue. It's 500 years later, and, and they weren't part of the, the Israel proper. It's part that was Assyria, up north, so it wasn't an issue that we're worried about. But here you were about maybe getting affected and infected by the pagan nations. So therefore the command is to either let them change 
or let them leave, or let them engage in battle. But why is there not a specific commandment to destroy Amalek to Yoshua is a good question. And this might be that just Yoshua had a first to get rid of the seven nations. I don't recall if Amalek's part of them or not. If he's, this is, so let's look in, um, in Yeshua and see what the answer is. Okay, now over here, so we, my point over here is that at the end of the day, Shaul did not listen to the divine commandment. And of course, we discussed last week that he was condemned for this. He didn't get that God's absolute commandment is a capital A. It's absolute. You must do it exactly what God says. Absolute. You're the Rosh Yisrael, you're the head of the Jewish people, you can't be wishy-washy, you can't change it, you can't deviate, you cannot rationalize it, etc. And after that conversation, we had seen five verses, six verses, which was explaining in the Hamalah Atar Hashan, they had compassion, it was their fault, not my fault, take responsibility and do it right. If you do it right, say Hatati. That's the Hatati. Now, all of that I want to contrast with David. Look at chapter 11 on page 664. Shemuel Bet, chapter 11. Very quickly, we want to run through this, through this chapter. This is the famous background of David's transgression with Bathsheba. David sends Joab and his servants against um, Ammon. Right? They, seizure, they have a seizure on the city. It's evening time, verse 2. David gets up from his bed. He's walking on the roof. The king's palace is higher up than the other houses in Jerusalem. He sees a woman washing on the roof. She's a beautiful woman. Right? And why is she washing on the roof? You'll see in a moment. David sends the father, who's this woman? Well, she's Bathsheba. David sends angels and he takes her and he comes to her and he sleeps with her and she was with Kadesh. She was, she was she was cleansing herself from her period. That's why she's going to the mikveh, the collected rainwater on top of the roof. With Kadesh. She's sanctifying herself from her period. So that's very simple. Yeah. Well, he got her when she was uh, clean. Yes. Okay. And fertile. Well, well, a woman is usually most fertile after That's seven days. Right. So she goes back to her house. And now she, so she's, verse 5, she is now pregnant. She goes to David. And she says, I'm pregnant. David says to you, Ah, he says, send me Uriah. So what does David try to do? Okay, verse 7. I'll do this quickly. Uriah comes back. and says, how's everybody doing? The war, everything else. David says to Uriah, go to your house. Wash your feet. And what is David's intent over here? <laughs> it would seem to be that he wanted to sleep with his wife. You know, that's what it seems to be. So what happens? Uriah goes to the king's house and he goes after him. Right? And then Uriah sleeps at the, verse 9, at the doorway of the king. He doesn't go to his house. They tell David, Uriah didn't go to his house. He wants to go to his house. He didn't go to his house. If they're, you know, two months in battle, you go to sleep with his wife. He doesn't do it. No, 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 we don't know yet. We don't, we don't know if that's the case. It's a good point, but we don't know the question. David says to Uriah, one second, you came from the derech, you came from the roadway, watch you go to your house. Meaning, euphemistically, watch you watch, watch sleep with your wife. Yes. What's wrong with you? So we'll have a reason but, but, but Uriah does not know this. Right. Now, whether Uriah suspected something, smelled a rat, if you will, we don't know. Assuming not. Assuming not. First of all, he asks David, one second, the, and look how holy a man he is, how righteous he is. He says, the Aaron and Israel and Judah are all in this Sukkot, they're all in this uh, place called Sukkot, meaning engaged in battle. My master, Yoav, are now on a field to encamp, to engage in battle. I should come to my house and eat and drink and sit with my wife I swear by your life that I won't do this. He's a loyal man. My best friends are engaged in battle and may be killed. I can't do this. David says to Uriah, Okay, no problem. Relax. Today and tomorrow. As well, I'll send you back. Uriah stays in Jerusalem on that day and the next day. David calls him, He's coming with me. He eats and he drinks and he gets him drunk. means his ill to get him drunk. Drink more, drink more, drink more, get some drunk. Why did he, let me ask this silly question. Why does he want to get him drunk? Get back to your wife. Get back to your wife. <laughs> You're not so silly. You understand these things. Okay. <laughs> so, they say about Edith, he goes at night to sleep. sleep in his bed. And he goes to sleep in his, in his bed, but with the servants of the king. He doesn't go to his house. Next day, there he says, this is hopeless. Therefore, by October, David writes a letter to Yoav. And he sends it in the hands of Uriah. And the letter, he says... 
Havut Uriah Mupaniyamichah place Uriah at the battle front where it's most intense and then leave him alone. This is horrific. This is really rough. And I'm, we're not trying to cover this up. Although Talmud does say that Rosh says David sinned is wrong. He made a mistake. David didn't sin with this. Hard to see how he didn't sin with this. The Navi itself sees us that he sinned. Of course. That's why so, he said uh, that's why he... We're going to get to that in a minute. Right. So we have to try to understand what does the Talmud mean by this. We'll raise that in a few minutes. Okay? Go back and let him... When you come and I want to be smitten and... That met when I'm dying. Verse 16, we all follow along. Now, when Yoav was about to take over the city, he placed Uriah to that place where he knows there's a very strong enemy. Right? 17, the men come from the city and they do battle and people die from the people and Uriah dies as well. Unless David thought, well, someone has to die in battle, so make it a little bit convenient. Yeah, okay, either way. die anyway. Well, well, like push the odds. Well, we'll see how this plays out. So hold on to that point. I mean, you, you try to exonerate David? No, but I'm Because he's not. But we'll see in a second. Hold on. So Yoav sends to David all that happened, and he commands the messenger to say, I did what you said. And if you become angry, you're going to say, why did you come close to the city to do battle? Don't you know they're going to shoot from you from the heights of the world? You're going to die. Yoav saying, don't be angry with me. Because he's afraid that we would say that why did you get so close? Siege them so they die of hunger. Why did you get so close? So they'll shoot at you. Right? In the olden days, you siege, they die of hunger, or they surrender. If you get close, you're going to get shot at. Why do that? So he's afraid of his anger. And then he gives verse 21, this famous story in Shoftim. There's a person called Avimelech ben Yerubeshet that a woman threw an anvil on top of him and she killed him in that way. So. All that, your eye was almost preempting, don't be angry with me. And then tell them that even Uriah died. The messenger comes to David, tells the whole entire story. Verse 23, David, but the, the people became very strong. They came out to us in the field. We got close to the city. And we fought into the gates of the city. And then they shot at us from the gates, from the Malach Oman, verse 24, from the walls. A lot of people died. And Uriah died as well. So he says to the Malach, Go tell Yoav, don't be upset. This happens. Don't be upset. All this happened. This happens in war. Okay, don't worry. Get rid of the city now, destroy it. Right? The wife of Uriah hears that her husband has died. She mourns her husband. So she obviously wasn't trying to cheat on her husband. Right? She mourns her husband. Bala. The seven days of mourning pass. Then he takes her into his house. She's his wife. See little Ben, and he has a child. Right? Uh, Who is the child? We'll see. I'm not going to tell you. Uh, I'm not going to tell you. Our, I'm not telling you. No, I'm not telling you. <laughs> no, not slow, but I'm not telling you. Okay, verse chapter 12. What David did is very evil in the eyes of God. Goes without saying. Now, of course, in the proper context, we should be aware that, of course, in the ancient Near Eastern world, a king had the right to every per- person that he wanted to. It was absolute right. As, for example, a Hashverosh. He had a harem. Any nice, good-looking person, gather her in, into my harem, spend the night with her, and leave her there. It's the best way of destroying the country because then who's going to be, who's going to be, who's young guy's going to marry? If you take, take 500 women, there's 500 guys not going to find their, their, uh, their wives. It was foolish. But okay. So, I showed this David, that gives him this extraordinary parable that we, it's one of the most powerful of parables in all of Tanakh extraordinary parable King David right and this is what part of Jewish literacy everyone should know this parable it's part of knowing Tanakh this parable is very significant Shnei Anashim sorry it's very known it's Tatarash yeah yeah this one yes yes mm-hmm. exactly so it says to him King David there are two men or in this one city. One is very rich, one is very poor. Rashir Hayatsoin. The rich man had tremendous amounts of sheep and cattle. Hadamirot. Very rich. The poor person had nothing. He had one little sheep, small sheep that he bought. He gave her life. The sheep grew with him and all the children in the house. From his bread she ate, from his cup she drank. And she slept with him and she was like a daughter. He loved this little sheep like a little puppy. Okay. 
Those days of sheep, today's a puppy. <laughs> that, they were in Lechalish Asher, a guest came to this very wealthy person. Now, to have compassion. The rich man had compassion. I don't want to take from my sheep and my cattle to make for my guest a meal. I don't do that. Compassion. Misplaced compassion. Right? This rich man, he'll go and slaughter the prey of the sheep of the Son of God, but has compassion on his own sheep. So it's a very well-placed word over here. Probably wanting to remind us okay. of Shaul did. Exactly. Shaul said, misplaced compassion on the son, on the sheep of Amalek. So it's almost as if he, Hashem is saying over here that your deed is Ma'aseh Amalek. Your deed is like Amalek. Okay, good. No, and it's what Shaul did to the Kohanim. That's later on. Right. Yes, also. Misplaced compassion. Correct. Good. Now what happens next? So, this rich person took this small little sheep and he made it, he shepherded it, he made it as a meal for this man. David is intensely angry. Look how striking this is. David's intensely angry. says, I swear by God's name, this man has to die. Now, that's almost an overreaction. Because, yes, if in fact the rich man stole or took the sheep, pay for it. Pay double, triple, double. It's not to die for that. You missed it. But that is very angry. He's emotional. He's very angry. Ben Maradish, he deserves to die if he did this. And not only to let him die, let him pay fourfold the sheep because of this evil thing. And because he didn't have compassion on, on the other man. It's unbelievable. Now, again, one can argue... He didn't realize his own sin. Right. They could argue that in verse 7 may be the most powerful pasuk in all of the prophetic writings, not all of the Torah. Mm-hmm. Sure. And it sounds much more powerful in Hebrew than it does in the English. Atah Haish. You are the man. Right? He's not satisfied with what he had. He had to take more. It's, it's, it's more than that. It's not a question of satisfaction. Being satisfied. It's more the evils of us. Wait, 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 wait. So says the God of Israel. I, God says, anointed you as king of Israel. I saved you from the hands of Shaul. I gave you the, ha- the house of your master, Shaul, and all the wives of your master to sleep with you in your bosom. And I gave you the whole of Israel and Judah. And if that's to with you, I will give you more and more and more and more. Why did you shame the word of God to this evil act in my eyes? Uriah, you killed? Well, David didn't do it. He didn't pull the trigger. He told you have to kill the trigger. But over here, from a moral point of view, David's held responsible. If you give a loaded gun to a child, you're responsible. But you have knew about her being pregnant? It's a good question. We don't really know. But at a certain point, you have may have figured it out. You are going to figure it out. He may be somewhat responsible, especially later on when David wants to have your Av killed. We're not really sure 100%. Could be the case. Okay. And you took his wife to be a wife for you. You, you killed him in the sword of Ben Amon. So that's the indictment. Now comes the punishment. We have, of course, certain principles that we learn throughout all Tanakh. Here we learn Sakhar and Onish, or Hef the Onshore. You've sinned, you must be punished. It's inevitable. You try... He was punished. Well, yeah, I guess we had. You must be punished for what you did. It's a very powerful statement. Now, the sword that you use, you kill this person, the sword shall now leave your house because you shamed me. It's Hill Hashem. You desecrated my name. You took the wife of Yahiti to be your wife. You killed, you committed adultery, you raped, whatever you did, however you want to find this, and now you're living with her? And you're ashamed? Right? Quran Hashem, God further says, I'm going to bring punishment from the midst of your house, and I will take your wives from your, while you see it yourself, and I'll go to your friends. They will sleep with your wives in front of everybody. Does this ever happen? I don't know if that happened. That's what I don't remember happening. Happen. Absolutely happened. Where did it happen? No. David, in about ten chapters, six chapters, has the... David has the problem. 
where his son Avimelech, Avshalom, sorry, Avshalom, rebels against him. He has to flee the city, right? Uh, the city. And then what happens? What does Avshalom make sure he does? He sleeps with the wives of David. Lene Arabin, his son, son, right? Now, let's look at that pasuk for a second. We look at that pasuk. It's in chapter Shmuel Bet. Um, ah, no. no, no, no. You're in the wrong chapter. Oh. Chapter 15, 16 and 17. Right? We look at chapter 16 first. That describes the rebellion of Absalom against David. Look at page. 680, right? Right, 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 680. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, right. Well, hold on. How do I, how do I make sure that I solidify my my throne? She says, oh, no problem. Go to, have relations with your Pirik Shavim, right? And everybody will hear that you have the Ashta, that you've become. Um, you've become what? The wrath of your father. Right, that you did this. And then they'll be strong behind you. So now, what is the first way too? Then Absalom turns to the, to the Ohel. He gives you the Ohel. He places the tent on the roof. Absalom then sleeps with his father's Pilakshim in front of everybody. Right? So everybody knows what he did. So this is what David happens. Of course, this is preceded also by a whole story with Amnon and Tamar. David never had a moment's peace after this event. He didn't have a moment's peace. His daughter, Tamar, his daughter Tamar is raped by Adonia, by Amnon, Amnon, and then Shalom kills Amnon, and then Yoav kills Shalom. Terrible story. Yeah, but you're wishing you and he's, he's so sorry all the time that you feel like, oh, we have to forgive this man. Well, that's our point. Hold on to that point for one second. So now, Hashem says that they will sleep with your wives, because you did this hiddenly, you did it quietly. This is back to, to chapter 12, 12, verse 12, 12, 12. You did it in secret, and I will do it publicly. Everybody will see in front of the heavens. Everyone will see this, right? Now, the key point in this context over here is verse 13. Right away. Right away. Like Shaul, that it took him a while. Exactly. That's one of to make a very careful statement that we had seen this before. I hope that you remember that we had done it very carefully in the last two weeks. That Shalom, Shaul in each one of these two cases discussed it and analyzed and rationalized it. You didn't come. People are running away. I had to engage in battle. What do you want from me? In the first case. Second case, I didn't do it. Hamal ha'am The people had compassion. And Shemur tells them, what do you mean the people had it? You're the Rosh of Tehsan. You're the head of it. You're the leader. The people of Israel. You're the king. Can't the people have compassion? God gave you the commandment. Well, what do you want from me? I came up and found the answer. Who says, Hatati? But I have one problem with that. One minute, one second. But what happens over here is that the same term is used, Hatati, that it immediately understands the depths of his sin. Yeah, but now, wait, 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 wait. So the question now is, how do I send the Gemara that says that didn't sin? There's two ways of looking at that, Gemara. One way you might say that. After Teshuvah, post-Teshuvah, person can atone for all of his sins. Meaning that if his Teshuvah over here is so sincere, so profound, right? And you'll notice that in your, your Bibles, there's a space after the word Hashem, which is almost a break in the action. You see the depth of David's Teshuvah. Now, we'd like to analogize. What would make you understand and see a transgression, whatever it may be, so profoundly that when it's pointed out to you, it's like you turn on the lights? In other words, what happened? David had this great desire for this woman. She went through this whole entire rigmarole. The guy comes, he goes, he sits in the back, he'll sleep, the whole nine yards, and if I just get him killed, and he doesn't see it. Finally, the analogy, the story of David's Kizatarash, that's me. Not yet, not yet, not yet. He's so upset, he's so devastated by this, his hatati is not simply, oh, okay, I said, 
Have a nice day. No, we have to try to convey the emotional, spiritual depth of those words. What? And remember that David himself is never subject to any punishment over here. Right? The lines that we have, his is not, that's not him, his house, all this stuff, is that what made him do Teshuvah? Or was it the realization, what in heaven's name did I do? Had this happened to me? <laughs> and do we see a man who has complete power over a woman, everyone else does this sort of thing, he doesn't see anything wrong with it, apparently, presumably. So he's told, rich man, poor man, rich man steals, the poor man is kisah, shuts the that's what I does to me. So the depth of Teshuvah, we'd like to see over here is so strong that David just is so sincere in his teshuvah that he ends up saying hatati and that's it so now does the Gemara mean that when you do such an intense teshuvah everyone's forgiven that's one possibility so really he sins but God forgives those sins if the teshuvah is sincere and profound enough and he also was guilty before God you don't normally say that you usually right. you just say I'm sorry you don't usually no, apologize because let's see now what does Sir want to say it's really I cannot not interfere Okay, so if you said Khatati Lashem, he knows that he will get uh, so his Shuva is, it's an easier Shuva than Khatati Lashem, than Khatati Lashem. One second, let me ask you a question. He should start with Uriah, not with Lashem. Who is the Avenger of Uriah? Who's the Avenger? What is Avenger? Lokem Dam. Who is the uh, Goel Dam? Avenger. Enlo Ben. Answer? Hashem. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Who's taking up the cause of Uriah? Hashem. Hashem is the ultimate Rokem, the ultimate Goen Adam for everybody. If I kill somebody, I'm going to live. But ultimately, what kind of hell will teach me? That even if there's nobody else around, God sees all. Ultimately, there's nobody else in the world. Who's going to end up taking up the cause of the man who was innocently killed? It's Hashem. Any Uriah would have been in life, who he had to say Chatati. He would have said Chatati to Uriah, not Lashem. To both. Every sin against men is a sin against God. Every sin against... Ha- we, you, we've been agreed, agreed, agreed. Yes, God will not forgive if the person does not forgive. Yes. But if, Uriah, if nobody's around, then Hashem is the, is the next in line. I sin against God by sinning against a person. Because that's sin of Elohim. I desecrated sin of Elohim. I trivialized it. I had a murder, which is the ultimate act of trivialization. So I did it. I destroyed this human life. So I sinned against God and against Uriah. Uriah is not around. So I now have to speak now to... this baby was going to be a mom. We're going to we're gonna get to the baby yet. We're going to get to the baby yet. We're going to get to the baby yet. He will die, but we're going to get to that baby yet. The question is why. We're going to get to that yet. So we have over here then, therefore the baby says, and then Matan says to Gamashem, so now, Matan immediately responds. So now, do you choose to understand this Hatat Hashem on a superficial level? Or do you see that this reverberated in his soul so deeply because the end is... Well, I forgive him. After reading Tehillim, I have to forgive him. Yeah, but the same person. But I agree. The Teshuvah is so much, so deep, deep. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. That all of Tehillim, and that is so profound of a human being, that he saw it immediately. It's so interesting. He didn't have to see it because the kings were allowed to take the other wife. So it's right. amazing that he did see it. Exactly. It's, it's right. No, but he was right. doing a, a cover-up before. So he, no. he knew that but things were right. Otherwise, he would have just tell Uriah, look, I have your wife, I like her, I want to... Okay, but he, but he had somewhat of a awareness. He wasn't sure that he likes what he was doing. Yeah, I agree, because he did try to cover it up. He tried to cover it up, but he was still entitled to do that because he, felt, he maybe was he felt. king. I, I think, think that if Uriah would have gone home and slept with his wife, he would have been comfortable it. knowing that this yes. is Yeah, so he wasn't... So look, he at, wasn't look at the levels... About it. I agree, absolutely. <clears throat> look at the levels of moral culpability. Ashma. How guilt works or how morally responsible he felt. Or didn't feel. Here's a person that writes to Yalim. He wrote before, he wrote afterwards. Here he has a tremendous ta'ava or desire. Freud already told us how powerful that desire is. Maybe it's hard for us to understand. Right? Maybe we would restrain ourselves. 
You know, we see beautiful men, beautiful women. We don't do that. They didn't have, they didn't see them on TV on on the bus. <laughs> yeah. So it's much easier now. I see it was not a big deal. Not a big deal. Maybe that's it. But here's the thing that here's a unique here's a unique combination of power. So here you have a unique combination of power, psychological power, physical power. The king, I am the king, along with this woman, undressed, washing. All that, she just turned him on. This is what they say. So what? I'm sorry. It appealed to him profoundly. Could not restrain himself. He thought it was okay. Okay, then I did this. Uh oh. So he said, uh oh, on a very superficial level, I better cover up. Once she, once she's pregnant. Yeah, once she's pregnant, because probably he would have just if she were pregnant, pregnant he right? Would have gone his own merry way. Right, definitely. He never would have been profoundly affected by it. Nobody seems to bother. One minute. Not yet. We don't know that yet. We'll come to that in a second. So, yeah, absolutely. But let's see what happened over here. So now, then he tries to cover with Uriah. Then it gets. So once the so this happened. She's pregnant. He won't come and get me off the hook. He has to be killed. He's killed. So finally, the depth of his transgression is revealed to him. Somebody turned on the lights, the moral lights. What might have been obvious to you and me was not obvious to him. But again, we weren't there. We don't have the psychological state of mind. What was he all about? King, power. Ancient Near Eastern culture, which means that every king had every woman he wants to. So David might have said something like, look, every king has any king every woman he wants to. I don't know, I want this one. What's the big deal? Well, you know, everybody has it. Does God really care of this one woman? Maybe he didn't think along those lines. She couldn't say no. And she couldn't say no. Or she didn't say no. So let's hold on to her perspective in a second. So this all happens over here. And finally, the moral revulsion that Hashem is expressing with soul, Arab, or everything else, becomes clear to David, the lights are turned on, and this is Hatati. Oh my God, how did I do this? How did I do this? So deep is this awareness. But I'm not surprised about it. Why am I surprised? Because Tilim is the reflections, reminiscence, reminiscence of every, of a very spiritual, profoundly sensitive person. But someone who's spiritual and profoundly sensitive does not necessarily mean that you always do what's right. The heart and mind work regarding moral behavior differently than that part of the heart and mind that deal with spiritual sensitivities. Right? And we understand that. So you can be a very spiritually sensitive person, but another part of your mind, heart, will deal with these moral issues. I wonder if there is like a line that you know that that's what he wrote before this Kisatarash well, and that's what he wrote. It's a good question. Him? Yeah, well, we have Tilim Nun Aleph. So when it begin after? I, I wonder. <coughs> we don't know if it's, if it's how it's chronologically or otherwise placed. Mm-hmm. Tilim Nun Aleph speaks about this incident. So one could look at Tilim Nun Aleph and get a reflection on mm-hmm. what he himself said about it. Mm-hmm. And we'll look, look at it and we'll see. You know, maybe next week. But at this point over here. We see David as having regretted what he did, Hatati, spiritually profound, does Teshuvah, and is immediately forgiven. Yes. Now he's forgiven, okay, you won't die. However, you have given rebuke, or better, you've desecrated God's name by this, which you did, and therefore the child shall die. So your Teshuvah is not good enough. It's good for you. But there's something else that, re- that has to happen. Now, as we saw before, in chapter 17, that we will still pay the, p- will still pay the price. Absalom will throw him out. Life. All his life. Exactly. So this Teshuvah works only at a certain point. And he will leave. Yes, and that's it. So does the Gemara mean that the sin is wiped away completely? Who knows? What is it that we send didn't get it straight. Gemara says, what does that mean? They're the same text. They know that these sins. But we want him to come back. David, uh, we we, we well, speak about Mashiach ben David. So it means that, well, if it's not clear, the sin, how we can pray and wait for him to come back? Well, maybe, <coughs> maybe David is a great example of how a person can, through Yisurim, afflictions, and through atonement, and through Teshuvah, that you can be cleansed. 
We all need cleansing. We all need spiritual cleansing. So why are we are not asking back for Shlomo. Why are we asking back for David? When we're asking back. Because David was a much more profound person. David was one because he was so spiritually profound in right feeling. So, so therefore, we want the question. So there is no question. He said the Gemara raising a question. Did if so said, no. Call Mishael Medei Chata. Know that we are already with. No, it means call Mishael Medei. Whoever said David sinned is wrong. So what does that mean? But we don't sinned. So maybe it means that after Teshuvah, there's no sin. He's cleansed. Oh. Somewhat, maybe different stages of cleansing. Meaning that he's, the child has to still die. Meaning his, his pilakshim is pilak short. His pilak short. still going to be slept with by Shalom. It's going to happen. So it takes different stages of, he, he's, of punishment. He was in exile. He's thrown out of the country. He's thrown away from the country because of what he did. So it took different stages of cleansing. Mm-hmm. Not exactly sure. But this seems to be the thrust of this whole entire chapter. We want to spend just one more week on this in terms of the child, look at the Lunun Aleph to see this. But what, the key point over here is that David does a certain Teshuvah, a very deep Teshuvah, and therefore his sin, on some level, is forgiven at this point. Shaul never came to that point. Shaul had to argue the issue out and rationalize the issue and discuss the issue or talk about the issue until at the end of the day he says, okay, you're right, Hatati. Now, the end of the story is that Shaul lost the throne because he never really got it. Meaning, never got the idea as to what Hashem wants. David understood it immediately. His moral sense, though so clouded earlier on, at this point, became very clear. Atayish, you're the man. Lights were turned on. David all of a sudden saw the light, the moral lights. It's me. I can't believe it. How do I do this? And then, Hatati. So we see David, author of Tehillim, not simply just saying this, not rationalizing it or excusing it, not saying, well, God, you know, I have Yetzin Allah, I have an evil inclination, I saw this beautiful woman, she was on the naked, what could I do? It wasn't my fault, I had Yetzin Allah. He doesn't say that. He takes full responsibility, Hatati. And therefore, he is somewhat exonerated, exonerated. We'll see the rest of the narrative next week, but that this should be seen in contrast to Shaul. Okay, thank you.